Welcome to the Tag Your It podcast. I'm Ray Ray, and I'm here to announce that we have permission from Hope Baptist to upload all five sessions of the recent God and Government conference that was held at First Baptist Battlefield on January 16th, 2021. Here is the first of the five sessions, which was a sermon from Josh Jenkins, an elder at Hope Baptist, on For Christendom, Christocracy, and the Separation of Church and State. Well, good morning. We're going to begin this morning by looking at Romans chapter 13, if you would like to follow along with me, and specifically at the important things found in verse 1 through 4. Let's go ahead and ask for the Lord's help before we begin. Oh Lord, I just thank you for the privilege to be here this morning. We thank you for your word and its sufficiency for all of life. We ask now that you would help us understand it. Lord, I ask for your grace as your word is preached here today. May it be pleasing to you. In your name I pray, amen. Romans chapter 13, looking at verse 1 through 4. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Why would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval." For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That is God's word. In the past year, the United States has seen an unprecedented amount of arbitrary government tyranny and abuse, along with an unprecedented amount of capitulation from the evangelicals. We were all blindsided by the arbitrary orders from the government, which I do not at all care to repeat, but it revealed to us many things about our churches, and it revealed to us that by and large, we were not prepared. We were shown to not have developed a thoroughly biblical view of jurisdictional authority and the order of God's hierarchical world. Quite frankly, our lack of understanding in that area is one of the explanations as to how we got to this point in the first place. We have not had a sufficiently biblical world and life view with which to diligently discipline the nations and our own nation. Sadly, what passes for most of modern Christianity is simply a Christianity that addresses personal salvation and a few basic morals. But this is far short of the whole truth, and it has hurt us. Because when we can receive a humanist education from the public schools and walk away thinking that our personal Christian religion is a nice addition to our humanist education, then we can be sure that we have a Christianity that will be largely impotent in society. But the historic Christian faith was one that literally built kingdoms and civilizations and explicitly propelled men on to expedition and invention and raised others to uh, put the fear of God into tyrant kings and queens. 
And we need to rediscover in our day the historic faith of our forefathers, a Christian faith which understood that the Bible puts forth a comprehensive world and life view which cannot be relegated to our private lives behind closed doors and a, a world and life view which cannot be merely seasoning with which to sprinkle on top of any society or culture, but one in which the, uh, the, the worldview completely conquers cultures and societies and makes new ones, new ones in which governments seek to restrain themselves by the word of God and where the people are enormously free to build and create and enterprise and work and take dominion and one in which the people themselves practice self-government under God, all things that are missing in our society today. But we are here today, those of us who are here, and we're here today to look at God's word. And we said that this conference would be a conference on Romans 13, and you guys have showed up. And that is something. Our intent is to look at this specific text of Scripture, explain it, and apply it to our current situation. We certainly do not get out of the mess we are in by sitting around, swapping our opinions and ideas, or licking our finger and sticking it up in the air. The way out comes only in humble submission to the Word of God. So my objective this morning in Romans 13, 1 through 4, is very simple. It is to lay a foundation that makes it abundantly clear that all responsible government, all government belongs to Jesus Christ and therefore must submit to him and therefore is responsible to him. So if you're looking at verse 1 through 4, you may see that I skip over some things and uh, be sure that I am not skipping over them. I'm laying a certain foundation, and those things that I skip over, uh, Brandon will cover and in his message, as well as possibly our panel discussion. You'll notice in verse 1 of Romans 13 that we're told there is no authority except from God. And this is telling us something about the source of authority, where it comes from. And as we are clearly told, there is no source of authority other than from God. And when we look throughout the Bible, we find that in God's creation and organizing of the world, he has set up hierarchies and different spheres of jurisdiction to which he imparts authority. And when God imparts authority to kings or parents or church elders uh, he is imparting to them an authority that is to be used in certain specified ways. See, God does not give up his authority when he imparts authority upon a government. Because it is the fact that God remains the transcendent source of authority that validates the derived authority. And that is what the authority is that the government has, a derived authority. The only authority that a civil government or governor has is from God. So far from that granting some type of uh, divine right of the king to do whatever he pleases, as was argued in the past, it, it instead lays a great responsibility on those in government to faithfully administer their God-ordained duties. You see, the derived authority 
from God is not an authority to do whatever the government wants to do. It is the responsibility to do what God has instructed them to do. Uh, For example, as a pastor in Christ's church, I don't have the authority to get up on the Lord's day and preach doctrines that are not in the Bible or to leave out ones that are to suit my hearers or my own agenda. The authority that I have is is not the authority to preach whatever I want or however someone else wants to hear it. It is the authority to preach the word. Uh, It's the authority to preach what God has said to preach. So similarly, the derived authority of the civil magistrate is not an unrestrained authority. It is an authority that is restrained by the word of God. And so the fact that the civil government is ordained by God as a legitimate authority does uh, does not absolutize their authority. Rather, it actually is the thing, because it is instituted by God, that is what actually limits their authority to be under God. And thus, it heightens their responsibility to obey God, since they will be judged and held responsible by God himself. Simply put, government is not the ultimate authority, God is. In our society today, we are faced with many uh, false gods and idols, and one of the idols of our culture today is the state. The false religion of statism uh, pervades our land and has even crept into many of our churches. The false Religion of statism is when the state becomes the God and the Savior and the solution to all of our problems. And people don't even have to say, oh, in that that kind of religious language, the state is my God, uh, for them to show that it actually is by how they live their lives and what they demand of the government. And and here's something we need to understand about statism. Statism is looking to the government to provide a solution for everything. What we need to understand is that when we participate in that kind of statism, we are not being submissive to godly authorities in accordance with Romans 13. That is not what being submissive to godly authorities is when when we are participating in the religion of statism. We are actually rebelling against God and aiding and abetting tyrants because the state's authority only comes from God. In other words, when we look to the state to do something that God has not given it the biblical jurisdiction over or something that God has given another jurisdiction to do, we are telling God essentially that his design and his purposes are not good enough. It's really um, not much different when a church looks for a woman to be their pastor when God's word clearly teaches that only qualified men are to be pastors. See, they are looking for solutions outside of where God has told us to look for them. And that is rebellion against God himself. And so when we look and see these problems in our society of the state doing things outside their jurisdiction, outside their jurisdiction, we need to first look to our own selves, look to our own churches. Where have we started looking outside of where God has told us to look for solutions to our problems? So to reiterate here, a civil government or any specific civil magistrate does not have inherent authority in and of themselves. Rather, their authority is imparted by God to carry out certain duties. One of the things that this means 
is that the government does not have the authority to decide right and wrong, nor do they have the authority to decide the scope of their jurisdiction. It means that they must get their marching orders from God, lest they face his judgment. So they don't have the authority to do whatever they want. They don't have the authority to be tyrants. This also means that we don't have the authority to obey the civil government in everything without exception. The civil magistrate is obligated to do what God says, just as any other individual is. And this means that they have to seek counsel from God's word, and the laws they make are to reflect the law of God. Note here that verse 4 tells us that the one in authority is God's servant. This idea that I have just spoken of, that the government should look to the Bible for how it should function, uh, that, of course, is a very despised idea in our day. But here's the deal. It does not matter how despised that idea is if that is what God has required of us. Even for many Christians who don't necessarily despise that idea, they still blush at the thought of saying that the government should look to the Bible and God's laws to determine their own. It's kind of embarrassing. They're embarrassed of it. Well, look where that embarrassment has got us. It doesn't matter if it's embarrassing, if it's what God has required. See, Romans 13 is not simply, as it has been used today, it's not simply telling Christians to zip it and submit to all government. God is doing something in Romans 13. He is, uh, of many things, laying a unflinching claim on the governing authorities. And any discussion of this passage without that recognition and that discussion falls short. You see, we can't understand what our submission is to look like if we don't even know what God requires of those who we are, submit, we are to submit to. Note again here, it says the governing authorities are God's servants. So because they are God's servants, that means they are not their own. We know that far too many civil magistrates are self-serving, doing whatever they need to do to remain elected and comfortable, lying, compromising, etc. That is rebellion against God. But because they are God's servants, this also means that they are not the people's servants either. We like the fact that this means that the government is not their own servants, uh, but they also are not the people's servants. The government is God's servants for our good. Now, there are certainly a lot of Americans today who think that the job of the government is to do the will of the people, but that is not a biblical idea. And certainly, the government is here for the people's good, as Romans 13 says, it's for our good, but the civil magistrate is not the servant of the people to do the people's will. Now, of course, when the civil magistrate does God's will, it is a service to the people. But we must reject any notion that the will of the people is what is right. You see, on the one hand, we have the God of statism uh, flourishing in our society. And then on the other hand, we have the God of democracy. On the one hand, a central state is looked to uh, to solve all of our problems. And on the other hand, the majority vote of the people is look to, to solve all our problems and determine right and wrong. Neither of these things are biblical. 
Because it does not matter if 51% or even 100% of the people want to legalize things such as so-called gay marriage. It is still sin, and it ought not to be promoted and legalized by the civil magistrate. And even though they have already done that, that does not make it the new standard of morality, which we must accept. Every person on this planet could shake their fist at God and wish to throw off his standard of morality, it does not matter because what is right and what is wrong remains what is right and what is wrong. And when God decides what is right and wrong, that is final. So not only does a centralized state not have the authority to decide what is right and wrong, but neither do the people. There seems to be an implicit standard of morality in our political society today that justifies sin by hiding behind the uh, will of the people. Uh, People say, well, the voters have spoken. Uh, The people have made their voice heard. But what about the fact that God has spoken? See, this idea of democracy has become a false humanistic religion that has replaced the transcendent God. I think of the incident that took place at the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. recently. And in the aftermath of that, you had Chuck Schumer and many others, Democrats and Republicans alike, who came out and called what happened, quote, the desecration of the temple of our democracy, end quote. Folks, that is religious language. The Capitol building is a temple, really? A temple to whom? The Lord Jesus most certainly did not tell us to build a temple like that for him. It is a humanistic temple. And of course, as Brandon said, we are not saying we should go and destroy the Capitol building, but we should pray that God would give us leaders who we can send to the Capitol building and who will legislate and act like actual Christians and pay no homage to the humanistic gods and pinch no incense to the will of the people, but seek only to honor and advocate for the law of God. So the government is to be God's servant, not their own, not man's, and certainly not any other gods. The God of the Bible is a jealous God. His commandment is that you shall have no other gods before me. He will not allow idols. Again, I'm sure many of you saw the the news surrounding the Uh, opening prayer to the recent uh, newly elected U.S. Congress where a representative from our own state of Missouri um, ended his prayer by saying, amen and a woman. Um, But the most blasphemous part about that prayer was the God to whom he prayed, if you caught that. After asking for peace in the land, he prayed, quote, now and evermore we ask it in the name of the monotheistic God Brahma, and God known by many names, by many different faiths, end quote. Folks, that is where the insurrection happened. It is an insurrection to to, to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if you think that this nation is going to continue to be safe from foreign enemies and will continue to enjoy prosperity now that our governmental representatives are praying to a false Hindu god named Brahma and many other gods by many different names, you are greatly mistaken. That prayer was an official national security threat. In the Old Testament, when Israel went after other gods, 
and turned away from Yahweh, one of the ways that God judged them over and over again was by sending foreign enemies to defeat them. What do you think is going to happen to this nation? Is God now suddenly okay with nations praying to other gods and having other gods before him? Well, certainly not. We owe him our undivided allegiance. In Psalm 2, God warns the rulers of the earth that they owe the Son, Jesus Christ, their honor and allegiance. It says in Psalm 2, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. It said, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. God said that to, to kings, to nations. And any and every nation that does not submit to and honor the Lord Jesus Christ specifically will perish. This is why we like the term uh, Christocracy. Because Christ rules and we are to uh, explicitly and specifically honor him and pledge our loyalty specifically to Jesus Christ, not to a generic deity, not to some unspecified higher power, but to Christ the King. Uh, did you know that in 2016, the Polish government officially declared Jesus Christ to be King of Poland? Uh, good move, Poland. You see, after Jesus came back from the dead and before he ascended to heaven, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See, Jesus is not just the king of heaven. He is not just the king of his church ruling in the hearts of all his people. He is the king of all of heaven and all of earth. The king of kings, the ruler of the kings of the earth, in time and in history, here and now, not just at some point in the future or on a spiritual realm. We are standing right now on purchased ground that belongs to Christ, and we are standing there no matter where we are standing, because all of it is his. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You know, something unfortunate about many modern Christians is that many of them believe that the government shouldn't be explicitly Christian and shouldn't seek to uphold biblical standards. Now, we can have all kinds of debates and disagreements on how exactly biblical standards and justice should be applied to our context, but it should be a commonly held belief among Christians that the government should explicitly seek the Bible for direction. And there's even a lot of Calvinists who think the government shouldn't seek to be a Christian institution and that, ought, that it ought to be secular. Now, you know, if you know me, I'm a ride-or-die, full-blooded Calvinist, but that ain't Calvinism. Um, the fundamental belief of Calvinism is the basic teaching of Scripture that God is a total, all-sovereign God, and he rules all of creation. As Psalm 24:1 states, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Or Psalm 115:3, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Or as R.C. Sproul stated, there is not 
a single maverick molecule, or as Abraham Kuyper famously put it, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And yet, we have Calvinists today who love the sovereignty of God, and they quote Sproul and Kuyper and the Psalms, but as soon as you seek to apply that to the civil government, they say, oh no, not there, that's secular. What? All authority in heaven and on earth means all of it. Again, in Psalm 2, we are given uh, some insight into, into some things that the Father said to the Son. And it says in Psalm 2, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. As Greg Bonson used to say, do you think Jesus forgot to ask? Matthew 28 is proof that he did not forget. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. And then he tells his disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. So do you see what happened there? The father in Psalm 2 told the son to ask, and he'll give him the nations and the ends of the earth. So at some point, the son asks for it. Because Jesus then comes to earth, he accomplishes redemption and rises from the dead, and then he basically says, the nations are now mine, so go get them. Tell them that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and that they're mine. The nations and the ends of the earth were given to Jesus. They belong to him. And so we are stealing if we try to take what is his. We owe Christ our allegiance, and there is not a single civil magistrate that is exempted from that demand. Some people might be getting pretty scared at the way I'm talking, you know, what about separation of church and state? Of course, properly understood, the separation of church and state is a Christian doctrine. Properly understood, we advocate for a clear jurisdictional separation of church and state, meaning God has given the state certain tasks that the church is not to do, such as the administration of the sword. And God has given the church certain tasks that the state is not to do, such as the administration of the sacraments. The church does not legislate or enforce law. The state does. The state does not legislate or enforce anything pertaining to the worship of God, including how many people can be in the building or what you have to wear on your face or anything like that. The state uh, does not have authority to do that. We believe in the separation of church and state, unlike the state obviously does. But Christians, um, we have to be sure that we are not spooked by the separation of church and state boogeyman, because that's the, that's the play the world runs on us. They want us to, when we say anything about God's demands on the state, they want, to, they want to pull out this boogeyman, oh, the separation of church and state, and that means we should just stop talking about it. We can't be spooked by that. Separation of church and state does not mean the separation of God and state. The church is not the state and vice versa, but God is still over the state, for he is over all. One thing that we need to understand, if we're, going, if we're going to surrender the state over to the secular humanists, thinking the state ought to remain neutral to God, we have to understand that there is no neutrality. Neutrality is a myth. And we need to understand that the leftist humanists don't want separation of God and state. They don't want that. They just want separation from the one true God and the state. 
They have their own gods that they want the state to serve. Remember, as they said, it was the temple to democracy. The idea that secularism is not a religion, because we can fall into that. We think, oh, secularists are neutral, and we need to share this common ground. But that idea of secularism being unreligious is a false idea. As men and women created in the image of God, we were created as religious beings. And if we reject Christianity, we do not cease to be religious. And we just, we just end up making up new gods. Uh, and what you will find in a radical, secular society is that it will either become demonic or radically humanistic, which can end up being demonic, where man's will is God. So don't buy the lie of secular neutrality or give in to the world's demands that we stop trying to make the Bible the foundation for society. They are not giving up their religious presuppositions, and neither should we. And ultimately, it should be that we want to seek to honor Jesus Christ as is due to him. But you know, it's very easy. It's very easy to get together and talk about how bad the government is it's very easy to do that, and we can, it's, we can point out all the problems with the government. I mean, anybody can do that. That's so easy. Conservatives are really good at talking about how bad the government is, and that's the only thing libertarians ever do, and um, certainly problems need to be pointed out. But if that's all we do here today, then we have failed. If all we do is point out the problems, then we have submitted to defeat. We have embraced a loser mentality, and we have only kicked the can down the road for our children and grandchildren to clean up the mess. That is not being self-governing and responsible under God. And that is what is required first, a people who are self-governed. We cannot have a restrained government if we don't have people who are not self-restrained under God. Friends, we need to hear this. The reason we have a government that does not honor Jesus is because we have a people who do not honor Jesus. John Calvin said, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. And we know that this nation has long since rebelled against Jesus Christ. We have turned to the false gods of statism, pluralism, secularism, humanism. We have gone fast and quick into sexual immorality of all sorts of perversions. We have forsaken our children and our homes by pawning off their education to the state and embracing ungodly feminism. And the men have thrown off their responsibilities and they are too afraid to say anything about it. And we murder Lord knows how many unborn children in the womb every day. And our churches have turned into clown shows. The worship of God has been desecrated in our own churches. Folks, we deserve Biden and Harris, if that's what we get. We deserve the judgment of God. And whatever we have coming our way, we ought to thank God for it, because it's right. See, the reason we have corrupt civil magistrates who do not honor Christ is because we are a corrupt people who do not honor Christ. And that is the unfortunate true commentary on our own churches, many of them. And that's where it must begin, with ourselves, with our churches. It begins by getting on our knees and confessing and repenting of all our rebellion against the rule of Jesus Christ in our lives.
It begins by giving our lives entirely over to the authority of Christ and seeking to obey him in every area. What part of your life are you living in disobedience to him? What part of your life are you harboring, uh, not giving over to him or keeping secret some certain sins? Folks, there is only one way out of God's judgment, but there is a way. It is only in Jesus Christ. The only way out is repentance and turning unto Christ. You see, Jesus is the king who did something that no kings ever do. He died to save his people. He is the king who died for his people. Uh, What kind of king does that? Because in statism, uh, the state sacrifices the people for the king. But Jesus is the king who sacrificed himself for his people. Tell me again why we would rather be ruled by kings who will sacrifice us first than by the Lord Jesus who gives himself for us. Jesus laid down his own life and shed his own blood to save a rebellious people like us. He's not only a sacrificial king, he is also a conquering king. Because when he went down into death, He came back out of it with keys of it in his hands. And when we confess our sins, we are free. And what we want is for all of you here to be free. That's what we want is to be free. And you cannot be free apart from having your sins forgiven by Jesus Christ. There is no freedom if you are enslaved to sin. That is the first step. We cannot even be politically free without having our sins forgiven. That is where it must begin. Confessing our sins, receiving Jesus Christ, and submitting all of our lives, every area of our lives to his rule. Then, and only then are we free, and only then are we able to disciple our own government. You see, we must understand that while each person will stand before God to give an account one day, God still, uh, still deals with nations in time and in history on earth. He raises nations, he puts them down. But you know what the great news is, is that not only does God judge nations, he also saves them. That's the whole point of what Jesus came to do. John three seventeen. for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The mission of God in the Bible and the cry of God's people is that the nations would come to Jesus Christ. Isaiah 2 says that the nations shall flow to the mountain of God. Psalm 72, he shall have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. In Psalm 22, all the nations or all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Jesus' parting command before his ascension wasn't to go pluck a few out of the fire. It was to go and disciple the nations. That is a grand task. Folks, the the old Christendom has passed away. And we may be in for a really tough time really soon. But God forbid that we pack it up and act like God didn't tell us to disciple the nations. 
The old Christendom has passed, but we are confident that a new one will come. Jesus will have what is his. Our king is one who rose from the dead. And we ought not act like he didn't rise from the dead. And he is alive today, seated in heaven at the right hand of God, where the Father has told him to sit there and rule until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Psalm 110. That means that Jesus will reign and he will be the enthroned king of all the earth until all his enemies are conquered and submitted to him. In Revelation eleven fifteen, we see there the scripture describing events that took place in the first century. And in the first century, after Jesus ascended into heaven, Revelation eleven fifteen notes, it says, in the first century, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Friends, whatever comes our way, we need not fret and fear. This world is Christ's. He purchased it with his blood. It was given to him by his Father. And so let us not go hide away in fear, but let us get to work building the next Christendom. And in order to have a Christocracy, you have to have a culture of Christ. You have to have churches that preach an exhaustive Christianity. And that starts very simply. It starts by opening our churches up wide and free, worshiping God purely according to his word. By, it starts by making sure our own households are in order. Men, we must order our own, our own homes before we can even begin to think about ordering the government. And we should have a lot of kids as God gives them to us. We should raise them and disciple them to believe the Bible and all of it and to submit to it and not to be embarrassed of it. We must sing the Psalms loudly and from our guts in our churches and in our homes and in the streets. We should band together as churches and as Christians and be ready to help one another in the coming days. No matter what, we must always remember that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So onward, Christian soldiers, for Christendom.